So how do we not live in the past, back when there were better days, and how do we not live in the future and we hope there'll be better days? How can we turn these days, the days we're living in, into the better days we want? Well, to do that, it really comes down to how we perceive time, how we look at time. And I want to propose that the human brain has an incredible capacity to distort time. To do that, I want to do an experiment. So far, I've done this experiment with multiple groups, and it's almost always been divided down the middle. So, whether you're part of our, our church community watching out in the tent, or you're here in the room or watching online, I'm going to repeat it a few times before you say your answer or get your answer. How might you answer this? If I said to you that the noon meeting on Wednesday has been moved ahead two hours. The noon meeting on Wednesday has been moved ahead two hours. What time do you think the meeting is now at? Is it now at 2 o'clock or is it now at 10 o'clock? The noon meeting on Wednesday has been moved ahead by two hours. So in the room here, how many people think the meeting is now at 10 a.m.? Okay, about two-thirds. How many think it's now at 2 o'clock? About a third. Now, how can that be? How can I say such a simple sentence and we're split in the room as to what that really means? And again, if you're watching online or in the tent, same thing. Almost every place I do it, it's somewhere between 50-50 to 60-40. Well, psychologists have discovered that we perceive time differently. Some of us are time-anchored and some of us are me-anchored. So if you come from the time-anchored perspective, you think that time doesn't move, and so if the meeting got moved forward, that means I moved back, therefore it's 10 a.m. If you're me-anchored, you feel like you're the part that's anchored, time is the thing that slid, and therefore it's clearly, there's no other way to look at this thing except it has to be 2 p.m. And you can argue about that all day today. Is it 10 or is it 2? I don't know the answer, because it tends on your perspective. We distort time. Now, in one sense, you see this all the time just in the phrases we use. We think time is infinite. We say things like, I thought I had all the time in the world. But you don't have infinite time at all. In fact, your kids go from preschool to graduate school, and you say what? Where did the time go? I wish I had more time. The time that I was kind of rushing the kids off to bed, I wish I could go back and get that time back because I'm never going to have those moments again. We, also, we often think that time can be lost or found as well, right? We say things like, you know, I, I just lost track of time. You know, I'm trying to find the time to make that a priority. Well, Jesus is going to tell a little bizarre, it's almost like the worst HR experience you've ever heard story with a twist ending you can't see coming to try and teach a principle about how we perceive time and how we can make these days the best days. So it's in this strange HR nightmare story that he tells, he's going to teach us that when you realize you have limited time, you learn how to maximize your time. And that we delude ourselves into thinking we have all the time in the world, but we do not have all the time in the world. You only have a certain phrase or a certain season when your kids are preschool, you'll never get that back. You only have a certain season when they're in high school, you'll never get that back. You have a certain season when you're in a new job, you never get that back. And finding out you have limited time forces you to maximize your time to say, how do I make the most in the season I'm in? In fact, uh, there's an old proverb 
in the Older Testament or the Torah from the book of Psalms, the writings, it says, Lord, teach us to number our days, to realize exactly how many days and minutes we have so that we can gain a heart of wisdom and not waste our time, not lose track of time, not wish there was more time, but to utilize the time we have. Teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. So, to Jesus' red talk, he tells us bizarre incidents that occurs, this HR nightmare, and then two idioms that we can get out of it. So, people are gathered together, and Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a man who owns a business. And news comes to him that one of his stewards, one of his money managers, one of his business operators, is wasting his goods. He's not making the best use of time, the best use of money, and the best use of resources. So, he calls the steward ahead and says, hey, give me an account of how you've been handling your time and money. And sure enough, he finds out the guy's been wasting time. So, he says, well, today is your last day. You can work till the end of the day. Now, this didn't really inspire the HR decision to walk people out of the office when you fire them, but by the time you get to the end of the story, you're going to say, this might have inspired the idea of walking people out when you fire them. Because this guy knows he now has one day. He has very limited time. How will he maximize his time knowing he has limited time in Jesus' story? So, he resolves in his own heart. He makes a decision. Man, I don't want to go dig a ditch. I'm too old for that. And I'm too proud to, to beg. So, he resolves to himself and he says, next slide, I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of stewardship, I got one day, I got limited time. I can only manage, I can only have this opportunity for one more day. When I'm put out of being the manager, put out of being the steward, when I get fired at the end of the day, he's saying, what can I do during my limited time to maximize that time so that tomorrow I will have relationships and commodities that will receive me into their houses? I need to build some relationships now to help me later. He goes, I got it. He calls up a couple of the creditors of the business owner. He says, hey, don't you owe uh, my master 100 oil? Yeah, 100 oil. Let's make it 50. 50? That sounds great. Calls up another creditor. Hey, don't you owe my... uh, my master, 100 wheat? Yeah. Let's make it 80. That sounds great. Now, what's he doing? He's building relationships in the limited time he has. He's maximizing his time so that tomorrow when he has no job, he can call these guys up. Remember what I did for you? He's now guaranteeing some things for his future. Make sense? The boss calls him back in, finds out what he's been doing. And when he calls him back in the office, what do you think he says? You worthless, terrible, unethical business owner, I should have walked you out when you got fired. No, wait till you see what Jesus says that the man heard from his boss. Now, to do that, I told you I'd tell you a story, and I want to tell you two idioms. We'll go to the idioms. We'll figure out exactly what he said. 
Jesus, after telling that story, comes out with this application. Therefore, be faithful in the little things. How in the world does Jesus get this out of that story? Look what Jesus says. He comes out of this and he says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. For he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, that's a name for money, unrighteous money or worldly money or temporal money, if you can't be faithful with temporal money, why would anyone commit to you eternal money or eternal riches or true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So his principle here is that our life is like that business owner. It's limited. You only have limited time. And you need to maximize your time. And your talents, your time, your opportunities, they're things that your creator has given you. And how we handle, how faithful we are during this time determines what will happen in the future because if you are faithful in a little now during this temporal time, God will reward you great things in the future with eternal time. If you're a good manager of the time, treasure, and talents God gives you during this limited time on earth, God will give you a lot more time, treasure, and talents in the future. Right? This is like management 101. You don't give somebody a big project until they've been faithful in a little project. I still haven't told you what the master said to the guy. But Jesus said one of the things we need to learn from this story is to be faithful in the little things. Because the little things matter. And God is watching the little things. The little things make a difference. In fact, it's one of the reasons as a church, maybe when you come in the door, you see all the little things. Maybe the little things are the bagels that are cut. Maybe it's the way you're greeted when you come in the door. We feel so strongly that the message we've read from the Bible and the Jesus we've discovered from the Bible has brought us incredible joy and hope, the ability to forgive, the ability to love other people. This whole series we've learned that, right? A few weeks ago we learned how to experience 70 times 7 forgiveness. When you experience 70 times 7 forgiveness, you can extend 70 times 7 forgiveness. We learned last week that there's this powerful principle that can revolutionize marriages and companies and countries and nations if you could simply do unto others as you would have them done, done unto you. We think this message of Jesus is so powerful, so revolutionary, can so bring purpose to your life that we serve and we give and we work hard to make sure those who come in our door are loved and cared for. We hope that they see the faithfulness in the little things and say, wow, this must matter. This must be significant. And every once in a while I get to hear stories, usually every week, stories of people who've been impacted by those of you who've greeted people at the door or the crafts their kids have brought in because of the way you served or the way you helped. Recently, I got to hear a story of a couple who's been coming for the last year and a half, partly online, partly um, now in the building. And I just noticed all the little things that they noticed. Remember, Jesus said, when you're faithful in the little things, I'll entrust you greater things. 
Listen to their story and notice how many little things drew them to the message of the Bible. Let's watch. I was a pediatric surgeon for a few years before I came to the U.S. I came here seven years ago, so I do research in pediatric liver disease at a, a children's hospital here. My husband, David, he uh, was here with work. Mm -hmm. The way we found Horizon Online was by Googling, I think, church in the Cincinnati area. And when we saw Horizon's website, and I think the homepage um, gave a good overview of the ways to get involved and the ways to view, because at this time we were virtual, and uh, we looked at the beliefs of the church and found it was based in scripture and met some of the basic criteria we were looking for and started watching from there. And we got used to sitting in front of the TV and um, we didn't realize what was missing when I was watching the Sunday service that there was a Saturday event for four critical decisions and I secretly registered him to, <laughs> without telling him but he was very happy. He, yeah, he, he finally felt like uh, we had a chance to really go out and interact with people. I think my first impression was when we were driving by uh, the church. It was very beautiful. It's like a castle. There are people standing there um, helping with traffic. And we felt welcomed. And we, we go all the way here into the church. There are people greeting us. Um, everybody is welcoming and respectful at the same time. We were both very excited sitting there. We were holding hands and look at each other and look at the stage, and it was, yeah. yeah. It's not like you have to be in the chapel. You have to um, sit there in the same room at the same time. One thing I found out that it's a flexibility the church has provided. There's no pressure at all what you choose to wear and whether you choose to sit in the chapel or you can sit in the hallway even with a TV and you have your own earbud, all these details. And there is a culture here to make it to perfection. Um, like when we go to church, there are many bagel selections. Sometimes I want to choose one, sometimes I want to try the other. In this church, I found that the bagels are cut into quarters. So you can decide which quarter you want. I'm pretty sure we can give a tour of the place, uh, even though we're so new because our first visit this guy found us, and we weren't sure who he was, but all of a sudden, we find ourselves on a tour of every inch of the building, every room, and uh, eventually we realized this, he's Bill, and he is like the head of maintenance, I think, and the grounds and facilities. That's an example that resonated with us from our very first visit. Bill took at least 20 minutes to, to make us feel like we were familiar with the place physically, and that led to some connections, which leads to another, and uh, now I have a volleyball game on Monday I need to attend, uh, apparently. And uh, again, you can't shake a hand online. I wish that more people will know that it is available here and come down and see people here in person. They will be amazed. That's how we felt. So many things about that story strike me. Uh, I play volleyball every week, so it was a buddy of mine that plays volleyball with me who invited him, so I didn't even know he got invited. But what I love about that is one of our values as a church is excellence. And the idea that excellence honors God and inspires people. 
I don't know about you, but I feel incredibly loved when I have great customer service, when somebody prioritizes me, when somebody um, shows me I'm important, what I think about is important, when I'm made to feel comfortable when I come to somebody's house. Other people matter to us as a church, and God's message matters to us, and we know that all of our time on earth is so limited and short that we want to be faithful in the little things so people can find out how to maximize their time now to have an eternal time in the future. That's what drives us. But immediately a, a, a quandary comes up. Maybe you don't even see the quandary. So here's the quandary. Well, which is it, Chad? I've heard you say that the Bible's not about what we do for God, works, but what, what God did for us, the cross. That's not what it sounds like Jesus is saying. Jesus says, depending on what you do, faithful in the little things, I will entrust you greater things. How can these two things both be true? Let me give you an example. If I told you that you had terminal cancer, and I said to you, I have found the cure for cancer, and I give it to you, and I give you a thousand doses. You take the dose, you inject it in yourself, and oh my goodness, you find the joy that the problem you couldn't solve on your own has been cured. And you've got 999 other vials or needles if you knew other people had cancer, wouldn't you pass that out? Wouldn't you say, this is the best news I've ever heard in my life, the thing we couldn't solve on our own has been solved? Wouldn't you tell other people about it? Wouldn't you maximize your time on earth to, to let as many people as possible know about the solution? That's the same idea of the message of the Bible, which is God says the human condition has a problem they can't solve, their own treasonousness, their own rebellion, their own inability to live up to their own standards. And I have solved that through my son dying on the cross. And I'm giving it to you freely. It's a free gift. It cures your problem and guarantees you heaven. And depending on how well you distribute the message of hope and joy and kindness to other people, I will reward you in the future, you're already going to heaven, with additional responsibilities, with additional rewards, with additional opportunities. So both can be true. You can get into heaven not based on what you did, but based on what God did. And God is a good manager. He is going to reward those who've been faithful in a little with much more to be faithful with. So his point here is that you need, he wants his followers to see life through the lens of I have very limited time. And how do I maximize my time during my limited time to set other people up for the future, myself and others? Now we're going to unpack that as we figure out what the boss said to the worker. It brings us to our second idiom. If our first one was be faithful in the little things, our second one that the manager affirms is I want you to shrewdly, shrewdly use your time and your money. You see, when you have limited time, you suddenly get very strategic about time and money. Your company begins to face the headwinds of recession. And what happens? It's in the time of facing a possible recession, you get very shrewd. What do we need not do? What do we need to pull back on? Where do we need to tighten our belt? Where do we need to invest more based on this? When you get news, you have a medical condition. If you know anyone who's had a heart attack, the minute they know they have limited time, they suddenly get a lot more shrewd with their time and money. Where do I want to spend my time? People say things like, well, this was such a wake-up call to me. I thought I had all the time in the world. Now that I know I have a limited time, I need to reprioritize my time, right? 
That's the idea here. So that is what Jesus is referring to when this, uh, this, this boss turns to his money manager and says what he's about to say, which is just, again, shocking. So the boss who's just seen his, his manager knock his creditors down from 100 to 80 and 100 to 50, it says that the, the boss commended commended, commended the unjust steward. What? Now notice, he doesn't say he commended his ethical behavior. He calls him unjust. So whatever it is he's commending, it's not his unethical behavior. What is he commending? Keep reading. He commended the guy because he had dealt shrewdly. He's commending his shrewdness, not his ethical behavior. And then he goes on to say, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in this generation than the sons of light. Was that supposed to help, Chad? Here's what he's saying. I tell you the thing this guy did right. Not his unethical behavior, but he knew he had limited time. And because he knew he had limited time, man, he maximized the limited time he had to prepare himself for the future. Right? You don't have to affirm his ethics or his decisions to say, that's pretty smart. They should have walked him out the door if they had an HR policy, but they didn't. But since they didn't, the guy knew he had limited time, therefore he maximized his time for the future. That's what the guy's saying. And Jesus is saying, the sons of light, the people who follow me, they are not as shrewd as the people who live in this world. The people in this world are much shrewder. They know how to maximize their time and money better than my followers. And that shouldn't be the case. My followers should be painfully aware that this life is a limited time. And therefore, they should shrewdly manage their limited time to prepare for the future. Now, next slide. If I was to paraphrase this, kind of a Hoven heresy paraphrase or Chez paraphrase. Here's what Jesus says. And I say to you, here's my application here. Make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. Well, already we've got to decode some words. So mammon is another word for money. Unrighteous meaning temporal, temporary money, stuff in this world money. So, and I say to you, make friends for yourself. Use your money, use your temporal money in this limited time you have called earth, use that time that when you fail, when you die, when you pass away, when your time comes to an end, that they, the people you impacted, the people you invested in, the people that you, you, you spiritually invested in, might receive you into an everlasting home. Here would be my paraphrase of that. Maximize your time and money in the present so that when you die, and we all will eventually die, You've created an eternal legacy for yourself. There's other people who found that cure to cancer. They found forgiveness. They found purpose. They found a way their marriage can be restored, that they could forgive 70 times 7. And it's not a legacy for you, but you have an eternal destiny. And you're not just there by yourself. You're there with other people who found the same purpose and meaning and hope in eternity. So Jesus... It's saying to you and I, shrewdly use your time and money. Realize like that money manager, you had a limited time, and how do you maximize your time to make the biggest difference? Let's keep going, though. Why does he call it unrighteous mammon? 
Like God's not against money. Jesus had lots of investors who invested in his ministry. Joanna, the, the wife of Chias, who worked for Herod, the richest man who probably has ever lived. Uh, Mary and Martha were very, very wealthy and invested in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was not against money. Why does he call this unrighteous mammon? Well, next verse. Look what it says. He uses this phrase. So I say to you, make yourselves friends by unrighteous mammon so that when you die. So the unrighteous part is the temporal part. It's the money that exists on this side of heaven. He's going to contrast temporal funds with true riches you get. Remember he said in faithfulness, if you're faithful with the little things, with the temporal things, I will entrust you eternal things. That's his idea. So let's look at some of the code words that may be embedded in this. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's always teaching from his book, what we know as the Old Testament. Let's go back to his story. Why did he choose wheat? And why did he choose oil? And why did he use the number 100? Why did he use the number 80? Well, let's look at his story and compare it to a story from his religious book. He said, a hundred measures of oil is in his story, but if you jump back to an Old Testament book called Ezra, there's a man named Ezra, and quick background on the story. Ezra is a, a priest, and back around 500 B.C., 600 B.C., imagine this is the temple, Jerusalem, the city. It got ransacked by the Babylonians. And all of the Jewish people had everything they owned destroyed, their temple destroyed, their homes destroyed, their city destroyed, and they had been in bondage for 70 years, impoverished for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians, and they said, you know what, the Persians don't care about us, we kind of got came along with the, with, the, uh, with the deal. I wonder if the Persians will let us go back to our homeland and rebuild our city and rebuild our land. Sure enough, the Persians were like, sure. But they have no money to rebuild their city, no money to rebuild their temple. So Ezra turns to this pagan, totally different value system king and says, would you be willing to finance the rebuilding of our city for the poor, for the impoverished, to create a place that people could have jobs, to create a place that people could worship, to create a place where people could find forgiveness? Would you, O king of Persia, who doesn't even agree with our God or agree with our, 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 our way of life, would you be willing to put some money into this type of priority that helps people? And of all the things Ezra asked for, guess what he asked for? Look at his list that he turns to the king of Persia and asks for. He asks for 100 wheat. We've got to eat while we're building the place. And he asks for 100 baths of oil. So Jesus is saying there's already an example in history of somebody who turned to a Persian king and said, let's use your finances Let's partner together, even though we don't agree on everything. Let's partner together to do something that makes a big difference. Let's create a space where cities and jobs can be provided for the future. And so in the same way, Ezra partnered with the Persian Empire to create something good for more people. He said, I want you and my followers to do the same. Now, if you don't know much about Cyrus... In history, he's known as Cyrus the Great. You can learn about what happened to the Persians in the Bible or in history books. They say the exact same thing. So the two people who are going to lead the money back to Israel, one is a guy named Zerubbabel, another is a guy named Ezra, another named Nehemiah, and all of them partner with Persian kings. 
So keep track of all this now. The Babylonians had just conquered the Jews, and now the Persians have conquered the Babylonians. Now, why does he call it wicked mammon? Well, let me tell you a little bit about these Persian kings. Specifically, let's talk first about Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was this incredible dictator, but he was a dictator. In fact, his grandpa, when his, he was about to be born, had a vision from Delphi, and the vision was that his grandson would be like a vine that comes and twists and takes over the empire. So when he is born, grandpa, rabid grandpa, angry grandpa, takes his newborn child, Cyrus the Great, hands him to a shepherd and says, take him out in the woods and kill him. We're not going to have him destroy the empire. Instead, the shepherd and his wife decide to raise Cyrus the Great. They raise him to 1314, and sure enough, he comes back into town. He starts working for the town. Eventually, he works his way up to, to prince, and he becomes a prince of Persia. He then, sure enough, begins to slowly manipulate and shrewdly work, and he takes over the Persian Empire, conquers the Persian Empire, then he conquers the Medes and the Persians, turns that into an entire empire, then a nearby country named Lydians, the Lydianites, he conquers the Lydianites, and then he gets all that together, and he comes in and crushes the Babylonians. But the Babylonians were tough to kill. They had built their entire city on the, on the river. So there's no way in. Gigantic, fortified walls. And the river that was two male soldiers in height, just say 12 feet deep. The river ran through the city. There was no way in. So Cyrus the Great got a bunch of men, slaves and soldiers, to divert the water, the river, into a water basin. It took him years to do it. And as he was diverting the water, the water supply coming into Babylon dropped to the point that it was not too um, warriors tall. It was waist high one person. And in one night, Cyrus the Great, this wicked, wicked dictator, snuck his men in through the water supply and overtook the Babylonian capital city in 24 hours. So, this wicked man who did wicked things and conquered all these nations, and yet Ezra and Zerubbabel said, yeah, but even though it's wicked money who did wicked things, if I can partner with this guy and divert some of those monies to things that really matter, like building a city and providing for jobs and rebuilding a temple, is it okay to do that? And Jesus is saying it's okay to make friends with wicked mammon if you can divert that temporal wicked mammon to eternal principles and priorities that really matter. Nehemiah partners with a future king of Persia, a guy named <laughs> Xerxes, mentioned the Bible several times, the book of Esther and the book of Nehemiah. This guy has a horrible anger problem. Historians tell us that they were trying to build a bridge to conquer the Greeks, and so they keep building the bridge, and the Black Sea is just raging back and forth. It keeps knocking the bridge down and knocking the bridge down. The army rebuilds it, knocks it down. So he shows up, and the water has knocked the bridge down again. Xerxes gets out. He says, that's it. That's it, the sea needs to know who's in charge here. And he commands his soldiers to whip the sea to let the sea know that it's not in charge. So not the smartest guy. But Jesus' point here, I think that's why he calls it wicked mammon, because he's referencing a time in history that Jewish leaders made friends with Xerxes and with Cyrus the Great and said, listen, we may not agree on God, we may agree on a lot of things, but can we agree that building a city and providing for the poor, and caring for the needy, and building a temple back in Jerusalem 
is important. Sure enough, Cyrus and Xerxes finance this endeavor that becomes the Jerusalem we know today, or the Jews are today. So, what does it look like? That's pretty shrewd, right? Pretty shrewd to get, to get, to get, uh, to get Cyrus and Xerxes to finance a whole city rebuild when you were poor and impoverished. But that's what Ezra Zerubbabel did. And God is saying the same thing the business leader did, the same thing that Ezra did, is the same thing we want to do. Can you shrewdly use the little bit of time you have? Because the bottom line is you and I have limited time. It's until someone we care about dies, you realize, oh my goodness, I didn't realize how short time was. In fact, what if all of us began to live like we were dying? You see, when you do get that audit, when you do get that heart attack, when you do get that health report, and you find out, oh my goodness, I thought I had more time, you start living like you're dying. And when you realize you have limited time, what happens? You begin to reallocate your currently misaligned resources and priorities to better priorities, don't you? Oh man, if I only got limited time, I want to spend more time with my marriage. I want to spend more time with my kids. I want to not put so much energy here and put it all here, right? When you live like you're dying, you reallocate what's currently maligned resources. Why are we putting money over there? Why are we spending time over there? Based on the limited time, we should be doing it like this. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, make friends for the future. When you realize you have limited time now, how can I invest what little time and energy and money I have now for the eternal things, the last forever things? And Jesus says, for no one can serve both God and money. You can't serve two masters. One of the unique things we have as a church is we get a chance to talk to real people going through real hardship. And I had one of those this week that was just so gut-wrenching and inspiring and emotional roller coaster. I, I, I called this woman up and I asked her if I could share the story if I didn't mention their names and she said it'd be fine. So I called this family up because I'd heard that her husband had just gotten a terminal diagnosis and, and he had been a top executive leader in a top company you would recognize. And, and I said, what's going on? She said, well, we have had the ability to have unlimited time and resources. We can fix just about anything in our life, in our career, but we can't fix this. She said, and so I'm going, while life's going on, I'm going to spend time with my husband in what's basically hospice now. I'm praying with him. I'm talking with him, although he can't talk very much anymore. I just realized we have very limited time left. She said, and Chad, I guess what I've realized is the only thing I can do is surrender. She said, so I found that for me during this time, I just put my hands in the air. Kind of a reminder of I can't do anything. I can't fix this. I'm surrendered. She said, I drive my car and I have one hand up just to remind myself I can't fix this. I'm surrendered. She says, I go to bed at night and I go to bed at night with my hands open. I literally fall asleep with my hands open saying, God, I surrender. She said, you know, the most important thing for my husband and I is we realize that our kids, teenagers, and others are watching how we, who say we're followers of Jesus, handle this terrible, unthinkable 
unchangeable circumstance. And we, my husband and I, have decided we want to show our kids what it looks like to live out the courage and faith and hope of Jesus in the midst of this terminal diagnosis. I'm like, they're actually maximizing their limited time to show those who are watching why eternity is what really matters. That's exactly what Jesus talked about. Talk about shrewdly using your time. What does it look like for you to not suppose you have another 70 years, not suppose you have another 50 years? What would it look like if you said, I have limited time? How would I maximize my time so that those who are watching my life, looking at my life, would know what really matters and not build their whole, put their whole substance into what happens in this temporal life, but in the life to come? Live like you're dying. And to look at the areas in your life that you would reallocate differently if you really knew that was true. We're all dying. Just a matter of time. So how do we maximize our time in light of our limited time? I want to pray for you because I don't know what's going on for you and then we're going to do this last song and this last song I hope will inspire you really. Inspire you. I want, in one sense, I, I had tears in my eyes listening to, this, to this, this wife describing her husband's diagnosis. And I also was so incredibly inspired by her courage, by her grace, by her uh, conviction. I thought, that I want what she has. I, I want, if I ever face that circumstance, I want to have that perspective for my kids and for my family. And I want that for you. I don't want that diagnosis for you, but I want that perspective for you, and I want it for me, that I can live like I'm dying and know that every day matters. Let's pray. Father, Father, we delude ourselves into thinking that we have more time than we really have. But God, we know that you want us to maximize every moment, every minute we have with our kids, with our family, with our companies. God, that every day can matter. We can just infuse it with significance and infuse it with what matters. And Father, it's because this life is a, a test run for the life to come. May we live like we're dying by being faithful in the little things because they matter and shrewdly using the time and the money You've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen.